episode 94 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. My name is Ulrich Beinert and I'm an airline pilot from Germany. I have over 5,000 hours on Airbus 320 and 1,000 hours on the A380. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today, I'm sitting down and talking with Ulrich Beinert. He is a A380 pilot out of Germany and possibly a future astronaut. He has a great story and one that I'm really excited to talk about and one where he's just always striving for more, always striving to do more and be more. And like I said, become an astronaut for Yasa, which is just so cool. And we talk more about why. We talk about what his goals are and how he got to where he is today. Aviation, I want to give a quick shout out to Abner Cordero. He is our Patreon of the week. Abner, thank you for being a great Patreon supporter, and I really appreciate it. If you want to be the Patreon of the week, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot. If you want to find out more information about Pilot the Pilot, you can follow us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Check our website out, www.pilotthepilothq.com. Aviation, I don't want to keep you any longer. Without any further ado, here's Ulrich Beinart. Ulrich, what is going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, Justin. It's great to finally be here. That's awesome. I'm excited that uh, we can make this work. I think we've been talking for a while <laughs> about trying to get this to happen, and we just needed to schedule out a time and make it happen, and that's what we're doing today. Schedule is hard with pilots. Yes. It is a recurring theme when I'm trying to set up a podcast interview. It's like, oh, well, that doesn't work, so what about this month? And then one, the one time we talk turns into like recording a year later, so <laughs> here we are. It's the same thing with with friends. You just have to do it at one point in time. You just have to say, okay, today we're going to do it. Yep. And <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hey, let's go ahead and get started. I want to kind of find more about, about your story. And I want to know from the beginning, what was the original interest in aviation? And why did you want to become a pilot? I, th- I think the ground f- uh, for my life in aviation was probably laid when I was uh, seven years old. My dad got a job in the United States. So the whole family moved to New York. We stayed for a total of seven years. And after the fifth year, I was sent back to Germany for the summer just to kind of freshen up my mother language. I spent one weekend with an old friend whose dad had a pilot's license. So he asked if I wanted to go fly, and I said, sure. Um, Now, of course, living in the U.S. and and traveling back and forth once a year, I'd flown a few times on a passenger plane across the Atlantic, but I had no idea how different this would be. So we got to the airfield. Um, the first huge difference was it was a grass strip, nothing I'd ever seen before. And the plane was probably the smallest plane that I'd ever gotten close to. It had four seats. <laughs> yeah. So I got to sit on, on the right-hand seat. My friend was in the back and his dad, of course, was sitting on the left seat. Um, we taxied across this bumpy little grass field and, uh, accelerated. He pulled back and it was just worlds apart from what I had known as a passenger. I mean, yeah, as a passenger, you have that that small little window on the side. And here I was sitting in the middle of what was happening. I could see the ground receding on the left in front of us on the right side. And if I turned around even behind us, and I can't remember much of the rest of the flight. I don't know how long we were in the air for. I don't know where we flew. I don't know what we did. But it was just the moment when he pulled back on that stick and that small machine lifted into the air. And I realized what we were doing. I was, I was not disconnected from it as, as you are as a passenger. 
but I was part of what was happening. And I came back to, to the United States and I think I could talk about nothing else but flying. I was only talking about flying. First thing I did was I got Microsoft Flight Simulator 5.1. You might remember it. <laughs> Rudimentary graphics. Um, I think you had little boxes of buildings, maybe something like five or six colors to, to make up a whole world. And the worst part was the refresh rate. I think we had eight frames per second on that old 486 uh, processor. I didn't even have a joystick. We did not have a joystick port on the computer. So I had to fly with the keyboard. I had the number keys, my left finger on the left side, the right finger on the right side, uh, middle finger centered. And to go left, I had to keep pressing the left finger and to go right, keep pressing the right finger. To center the controls, it was the middle finger. Same thing for up and down, just using the middle finger. That's really funny. Uh, yeah. And now you're flying a plane with, uh, with a keyboard right now too. So it's like, it's all full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it really was not enough for me. My parents realized, okay, we have to do more for the kid. Uh, so my dad found um, a flight school close by. That was uh, Westchester County Airport. Oh, yeah. November. Go there all the time. Really? Yeah, all the time. That was a really, really, really great place. Um, so I got my, my first lesson in um, a Tampico TB9, the Sakata family. How old were you? I was 12 years old. Okay, dang, man. The yeah. aviation bug hit you hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, so, and I'm so happy that my parents were supporting this. They, I mean, sometimes you have parents that say, well, kid, you're crazy, um, or we don't have the money. Um, my parents did, and they said, okay, let's, let's try this out. And uh, they got me my first flying lesson. And the instructor was super cool. Uh, Patrick Curran, I don't know um, if he still exists in the aviation community. I don't know if he's listening in. Um, if you are, <laughs> a lot has happened since that little kid flew with you for the first time. Because um, he, he went on to do, to do other things in aviation, obviously. And he let me do a lot in that first lesson. He was telling me how to do everything, but I got to taxi to the runway. I got to line up. Um, we accelerated down that runway. I think he had his hands on the throttle, but... Um, he let me take off and I pulled back on that yoke. And now this was, this was the same experience as flying with my friend, but just a thousand times more awesome because I was doing it myself. He did all of the, of the radio comms, which completely freaked me out. But I mean, here I was, this 12-year-old kid who was flying an airplane. It, it would be years until I was allowed to drive a car. But um, yeah, I got to land the plane. And I got out and I'm like, okay, dad, I want to go again. Yeah. When, when can I do this again? <laughs> Let's go. And actually I did get to do it again once a month instead of an allowance. That was, that was the deal. So, uh, once a month, my parents paid for one flying lesson. I was far from the age of being allowed to solo or even, even go further. So, uh, there was no real progression, but it was the, the coolest thing, um, I could, I could imagine for myself. And uh, my dad was watching me fly once a month, and he was kind of bored when he sat there just uh, watching it happen each month. So he got his first flying lesson. No way. Uh, yes way. <laughs> and he liked it so much that he would go back to the airport once a week. So he overtook me pretty fast. He soloed. He got his license. And, uh, well, I can't say that I was I was mad at him. Of course, I understood, but I was like, Hey, Dad, I want to do that too. Yeah, it's like this is my thing, Dad. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. So that, that went on for two years. And then we moved back to Germany where motor planes were just extremely expensive. Back then, this was 1995 to seven. Uh, by the way, at the same time that, that Kevin Casson, the drizzle was flying in the same area. Um, he's, I think he's two, three years older than I am and, and started flying about two years later. So that was, that was a dangerous place to be with, with Kevin and I in the same airspace at that time. <laughs> That's so funny. What a small yeah. world. Yeah. Um, and, and I found out years after the fact, uh, when we met on Instagram. So we were paying about 80 bucks for an hour, um, including the instructor uh, back wild. then. Yeah. And, and in Germany, it's, it was four times as much. And it's still four times as much prior, right? It, it still is. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so my, my dad said, well, there's the option of uh, flying a glider. And I thought about gliders and I said, well, it doesn't have a motor. That's not cool. And, and only much later did I realize how wrong I was when I actually got my glider license in my late twenties after I'd already been flying the Airbus for years. We can get to that maybe a little later. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. My wife has flown a glider before. We actually flew gliders with, uh, Kevin and Kurt in Ohio, because we all kind of lived in similar areas and we all met up and we went out and flew gliders and she's hooked now. She's like, I want my glider rating, I want my pilot rating. I'm like, oh, why don't we finish med school first? Then we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you know, when, when kids ask me on, on Instagram um, about how to become a pilot uh, and they're sad that they, they maybe cannot become a pilot because they can't afford the training or um, there's, there's medical troubles, I tell them, don't worry, you don't have to be an airline pilot. There's so much stuff you can do in aviation, and it begins with flying gliders. I started to fly gliders when I'd been flying A320 for eight years, and and I think it's way more awesome. Gliders are fun. I had a lot of fun flying a glider. It's, it's pretty cool. Did the gliders that you fly, did they have um did you have a plane that pulled you up, or was it the the winch that just kind of like flew you up? We had the the plane that pulled us up, which was really challenging. Uh, and the winch, which was how I got into glider flying, because a pilot, um, a colleague took me on a glider with a winch launch, and it was like a roller coaster ride. I would say that that winch launch sounds terrifying. <laughs> just like looking at it, it's like, what the heck? It's not. It's great. You just have to know what you're doing. Um, and, and it's the same thing that we're learning in the airlines right now with the upset recovery training, that um, if, if the rope... Um, the rope that pulls you up, it has a, a rated break point. So if, if the force on the rope gets too strong, like if you pull back too much um, or, or the guy pulling in the rope pulls too strong, then it'll break and then you have nothing giving you energy anymore. So you have to push to unload. That's the same thing as we do uh, when we get into an upset situation. You push to unload. Um, and as soon as you have less than one G, ideally maybe even zero Gs, you don't need any airspace to have lift. So you're not in immediate danger. Uh, the danger comes from from bad decision making. Uh, you have to, yeah, it, it often does, right? Yes. Uh, you have to think a lot about what you will do in which situation. Like in the beginning of that winch launch, you can't pull back too much yet because um, you're just maybe 10, 20, 30 feet above the ground. That's the point where you're going to be landing straight ahead right away. Um, when you're really, really high up, you're basically at the end of your launch, so you can almost enter the normal pattern. But in between, you have to have that kind of, kind of like a V1 point where you have to, where you think about when will I no longer go, go land straight ahead? 
when will I turn around and land maybe in the opposite direction with tailwind or do a like a short pattern? Uh, so a, a lot of thought goes into those those uh, launches and considering that it's that it's 12 13 14 year old kids in germany that are that are learning to fly gliders i think that's really impressive and i I think it it really helps them mature in that age where they would usually start doing a lot of bs yeah yeah what um would you wish you would have got your glider rating before you got all your other ratings do you think it would have been helpful not necessarily um i i did just fine i think it might help a lot of people but if you love aviation, I definitely recommend flying the gliders if you can. If that's the only thing you can do, don't not do it because you think it's uncool because it doesn't have a motor. It's it's way cooler. <laughs> it is pretty cool. It's so awesome. And I actually I actually had one of those rated breakpoints break on me um, at, just after I'd gotten my um, my license on the glider, and I kept the thing. I framed it, and I, it's hanging on my wall. <laughs> Kind of as a reminder that that on every flight something can go wrong, yeah. and it's it's like uh, it's like Canadian astronaut Chris Hatfield says. Uh, he wrote in his book that that for every phase of flight, he always asked himself, "From where is the danger coming in this phase?" Like I have I have a takeoff with my airliner. Of course, it's the engine failure, the engine failure on the runway, the engine failure right after the departure. When I'm at high altitude, maybe it's decompression. So there's always something that can go wrong for each phase of flight. And to think about that and to be prepared for exactly that. Absolutely. And that's why we train. It's all about understanding what threats and what threats can happen when and how to prioritize them and how to come down from them safely. So it's definitely kind of threat management that you have to do constantly and constantly thinking about like, all right, here we are. Like never be complacent and always have that mind going like, all right, what airport could I land at? What could I do that? That's got to be tricky in the A380 though too, because your airports or your airplane's so big, you can't just land at every airport. You can't, but that's one of the most amazing things about the A380. It's incredibly redundant. You have, you have, you have such redundancy. I mean, we have, the first time I was on an A380, I was surprised that we only have two hydraulic systems. On Airbus, uh, we typically have three, uh, which which are not numbered like on Boeing. They have they have colors. It's green, yellow, and blue. The A380 has only green and yellow hydraulic, but we have local backup systems at every single part of the plane that that needs hydraulics on the landing gear, on the flaps, on the spoilers. Every part um, has electro hydrostatic backups. It's 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 extremely complex. And um, we have we have only the two systems which are running at a at a higher uh, psi. It's five thousand instead of the, the traditional three thousand. Each hydraulic circuit is powered by two engines. So we have the two engines on the left for the green, the two engines on the right for the yellow, and each engine has two pumps. So we have a total of four pumps to power each system. So there's there's a lot of backup going on on the A380. And that's just hydraulics. And if we lose, if we lose the both main hydraulic systems, um, we do fall into the what, what's called the alternate flight control law. But we still have autopilots. Yeah, yeah. The, the plane can fly on autopilot with both hydraulic systems uh, down. That's awesome. <laughs> you can do an auto land then. Never have to touch it. I'm not sure if we still have auto land. I I think I think we don't in the alternate law. Hopefully, you don't have to find out. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take it back a little bit. So obviously you're in the States, you're doing some flying. Like you said, it's cheaper. You can kind of see like a route to become a pilot and you can see like the way to do it almost. And it's a bunch, it's a lot cheaper like we talked about, but you move back to Germany and it's more expensive. There might be some more kind of uh 
different kind of obstacles in your in your path to becoming a pilot. How did you and what did you do to become a pilot? Because is there like a normal like in the states we have part sixty one versus one forty one. It's kind of like university versus local flight school, and you can do one faster, one's more expensive. Like what are the options that you had to become a pilot when you went back to Germany? When I went back to Germany, I actually had no idea. The next thing I wanted to do after become becoming a pilot was to become an astronaut. And as as my life kind of progressed towards the end of school, uh, we have 13 grades here, and then that's um, that's when we usually go off to university um, or to do an apprenticeship as in a, in manual labor. I had no idea what I wanted to do because I, I I had I had I had flown in the states. I'd seen how hard it is for these guys to to build their hours as CFIs to maybe make it to the regionals and, and, and years or decades later land a job at the main line. And I, I didn't want that. I didn't want that insecurity, which it's something inherently not, it's not the way a pilot thinks. We're always prepared for everything. So I, I really didn't know if I wanted that. Um, same for astronaut, which which turned out to be kind of like a part-time job. I mean, you, you would go fly as a as a military pilot or you'd be a scientist, a doctor, and then then you could become an astronaut. So. I had no idea what what I wanted to do. So I finished school, and in Germany back then we had a mandatory military service of uh, nine years, and anyone that calls himself a pacifist can get out of that, but then would have to do ten uh, months of of a civil service. You would work with old people, work with disabled people. Um, I worked at a youth hostel, uh, cleaning beds and <laughs> and cleaning dishes for people. Um, <laughs> That's but, a big difference. It, it, nine years and ten months. It's like, uh, no, sorry, sorry, no, nine nine months. Okay, it's gotcha. nine months. I gotcha. Said, yeah, I was like nine years. That's a that's a long time. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, it's nine nine months to ten months. Um, because they, they it's a humbling experience. They want you to kind of realize that life is is not all easy. And um, at the end of that, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> you just so knew you dad, probably didn't want to keep doing that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. My my dad comes up to me and says, well, now what do you want to do? And I'm like, dad, I have no idea. I told him, well, I was thinking of becoming a medical doctor. I'd always been interested in medicine. Um, I'd also, I also thought about uh, becoming a mechanical engineer. I'd been doing a lot of astronomy and astrophotography. So the, the mounts, the astronomical mounts that I used to, to, to track my cameras across the sky with an extreme precision that impressed me so much that I thought, Oh, I could build something like this. Um, so I told him, okay, doctor or engineer. And he says to me, well, what about flying? And I'm like, well, what about flying? And he said, well, you always wanted to become a pilot. And I told him, well, you know, it's kind of hard and unrealistic and you never know. And he said, well, did you know that uh, the national carrier has a pretty awesome cadet program? And I said, no, and this was the time when not everyone had internet yet, but we did. And with our slow connection, I, I got the website to load, their recruitment website. And I was looking at these high gloss pictures of, of dudes and dudettes, their hands on the thrust levers. And it was all like, whoa, yes, I want to do this. That's exactly what I want to do. I, I didn't know two hours ago, but uh, yeah, now I do. Um, so the, the fever was back. Um, and I immediately applied, but I also applied to med school because a pilot always has a plan B. And, uh, this cadet program was one where when you got in, they would pay for your training, 
they would practically guarantee you a job if you passed all their tests. And then you would pay back only a small part of your training costs. But the thing is, only about 3% of the people who applied got in. Was that more competitive than medical school to apply to medical school? Uh, definitely, definitely. Med, med school was, was only um, by, by the grade you had at the end of, of, um, of school, kind of like a GPA. Um, I, I barely got in. I had, I had a pretty good grades, um, but I still got in. So I had the spot in med school. And the, the, the tests, the, assess, the assessment center for, uh, for the airline uh, took longer. It was, um, it's two different assessments of two days each. Um, so I went off for the first one. The first one was pretty impersonal. You sat down in a big room with 20, 30, 40 other, other kids and just had to answer uh, questions on a computer screen. There was simple math. There was physics. Psychology, you had to answer psychological questions where they would analyze you. You had no idea what they were listening for. So um, at this point, I, I always said to myself, this airline had 50 years of experience in selecting cadets to become not only successful first officers, but successful commanders at that airline later on. So I said, if they say that I'm not the guy for them, then they're probably right. So I was I was super st- Joked to become a pilot, but I would still accept their decision if they said, no, you're not the right person for us. You're not the right person for this job. That's hard to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's hard. To, that's I, a hard thing to accept. <laughs> I got into med school. Um, I passed the first round of tests for the airline, but there was still the second round. Um, if, if I failed there, I would obviously go to med school. If I succeeded, I would do the the, the airlines cadet program. There was also the option of doing a university course that included the airlines program. Now, this is kind of what you were talking about before. I'm not, I, I don't know the differences in the United States. I've heard you talk about them a few times. Um, I never realized it, it worked this way, but in Germany, you actually, there's, there's one university that offers a course called aviation systems, engineering and management. It takes four years and it includes your flight training up to, a commercial, what we call frozen ATP, where you have the the airline theory, um, but you still need to gather the hours and then you automatically get the license. And my two parents being both being academics, I think they were kind of nudging me in, in the direction of, of, of doing that. So I said, well, okay, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> I'll do that. And because it was right before the semester started, um, Two weeks before that second round of assessment center tests, I had to decide, would I go to med school now? Would I listen to those lectures or would I move up north and listen to the lectures for the, for the uh, university pilot course? I decided to do the latter and I sat in on, on those lectures listening um, and taking notes. And two weeks later, it was a second round of, of assessment center, which was now much more personal you have a first day of individual one-on-one and, and group tests, um, always with psychologists uh, present who were watching you, observing you, talking directly to you. <laughs> um, you. There was a lot of, they were looking to see, are you, can you work well in a group 
Uh, do you have command ability? Can you can you tell other people? Uh, can are you convinced of your own um, of your own ideas of your own thoughts? Can you can you bring them across um, and and convince other people to go with you? Um, but also, can you can you join a group and can you be supportive in a group? That's the kind of thing they're looking for in in one on one situations where you have to tell someone the bad news um, without breaking their heart. <laughs> And, uh, and, and also, um, there, there was this one test you, you would have four applicants sit in a room together and, uh, all pretending to be CFIs who were trying to get their own flight student into, let's say a championship. Only one student can go and everyone has to kind of bring in their arguments and, uh, listen to the others, of course, and and accept their arguments, and then uh, kind of find a consensus for for all of this. And um, it, it it wasn't about the result. It wasn't about getting your student in, because obviously only one person could get in, but you could still have four people sitting there who were all very very qualified for this job. Uh, so they were looking they were looking at your personality. They were looking at how are you how do you interact with other people? Um, do you just put them down or are you constructive? And after that one day, a couple of people went home and a couple were invited to the last day. And the last day was, uh, first, it was a simulator, a very rudimentary simulator, again. Um, but you a had little to, bit better than your uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator you had with the keyboard. <laughs> definitely better <laughs> yeah. than MS uh, Flight Simulator 5.1. <laughs> and the, the point, again, was not to see how well you fly a plane because... This airline has the concept of, of hiring people directly from school without any previous experience because they have the concept that it's way easier to teach someone how to fly an airline from, airliner from the ground up than taking someone who's already learned parts of flying um, different airplanes, maybe different procedures, uh, not the way this airline does it, um, and changing those, those, uh, those procedures. So... I would tend to agree. I mean, there's definitely, I think that's more of a European thing too. I think um, there are more European carriers out there that kind of believe in, they train you the right way from kind of ground zero. You know, they, they are kind of, they train you on the specific airlines procedures when you're in a 172, where in the States, it's more of like, get the training done and then you go to the airline and you learn what you need to do, which it works different for different people. And both systems are good because obviously they both work. But it just is like personal preference and which one you'd rather like and rather do. And I think there are some flight schools that maybe are being kind of sponsored by airlines in the States now where they're starting to train you the way that they want the, air, the airlines want you to be trained. So I think that's starting to come into picture here, but it's still a little bit different. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I understand, of course, both ways. I, I was I was totally, totally with what, what my airline was doing. And so um, with, with the simulator, obviously, they weren't looking for flight skills. They were looking to see how fast you can learn to do what they tell you to do. So um, they would tell you, pull back, you go up, push forward, you go down. And some people already knew. So they, they had a different baseline for those people who had already flown planes, who'd learned to fly gliders, maybe, or, or had the the experience that I had. And there were, there were kids, young adults who were there who had no previous experience. So of course, different baseline again. Um, but what was important was that over two or three rounds of flying this simulator, they wanted to see a certain progression. They wanted to see uh, you improve all the while 
asking you questions while you're doing this. So you, ha- you would have to fly straight for 30 seconds, then uh, a climbing right turn by 1,000 feet in one minute, and then a descending left turn 500 feet in 30 seconds. And there's this guy ans- asking you stuff about yourself, about uh, little, little math problems, like what's two times seven? And um, kind of just trying to confuse you and get, get you out of what you're doing, kind of um, maybe left brain, right brain kind of stuff um, to see, are you, um, can you, can you multitask? Can you answer the one question and then quickly go back to what you're doing and, and correct uh, for, for, correct your flight path. And once you passed that, you went into an interview with a senior captain, a senior training captain from the airline. Um, again, psychologists. And they would ask you a lot of questions. I can't remember which ones. I do remember that the two guys before me were in there for, I think, an hour and a half each. Oh my gosh. And they, a lot they, of questions. they were, yeah, they were both accepted. Okay. And then I went in, and after 45 minutes, we were done. Nice. And uh, well, 45 minutes compared to one and a half hours for the guys that, that got in, I was like, oh, okay. Well, maybe I didn't get in because they didn't tell you right away. Okay. They, they, they would, they would uh, go back and, and, and talk about me. And then uh, they came out and said, well, we have your results. <laughs> Walk into the room again, <laughs> look at all of them. And they say, hey, congratulations, you got in. Nice. Like, Whoa, yeah. shit. <laughs> That's so nice. That's so, wow. I, I can barely imagine. I mean, of, I was, I was hoping for it. I was, I was, something felt like I would get it, but you're never sure. I mean, if, if 90% of people who apply do not get in, then even at the end, there's a chance that they just say, well, you're not the right guy for us. But I got in. So I went back to, to Bremen, the city where, um, where they have their flight training and the university. I had to find an apartment. All this time I'd been living with other with classmates um, in hotels and hostels, kind of moving around every two to three days, um, all while listening in on these lectures. But now I knew I was going to stay here and got an apartment and then really got down to studying. So it was like a four-year university and you got your degree there and you did your training as well while you're there? Exactly, okay. exactly. It starts out with uh, three semesters, one and a half years of, of uh, only university. Then you go to university and ground school in parallel for another year, two semesters. You would go to university Monday to Wednesday and have ground school on Thursdays and Fridays. Tests all the, all the time in between. And so after a total of two and a half years, we got into a Boeing 747 from Frankfurt to Denver and then went on to Phoenix, Arizona. And then we had a half year of flight training. And what I, what I considered really, really tough um, on the other, on my classmates, was that many of them had never flown a plane before. I had about 30 hours of experience. And we, we, we sat there for, for a year learning ground school stuff. Um, practically all of the, the VFR private pilot kind of towards the commercial pilot theory without ever seeing the inside of an airplane. Yeah, they, they were explaining to us how altimeters work, how an artificial horizon works, a turn coordinator, how, how motors work, how the flaps work, how uh, flight controls, all of that. And I, I had seen it. I had used it. And most of these other kids had never. And I was, I was amazed how well they could learn that just from paper. 
I mean, the airline has has incredibly good um, learning materials, great great scripts. It's all all produced in house. So they have they have really really they have fifty years of experience in in teaching pilots how to fly from the ground directly to the airline cockpit. Yeah, I mean, it's well. One thing is like for me, I need to. I'm more of a visual. Like I need to see it. So I need to like be on the airplane and pull the flaps down and like think about the electric the electric system or think about the hydraulic system, however it's operated, and just like need to be there and see it and like think about it. So learning from paper can definitely be difficult for certain people. And then also on top of that, were most of your classmates was this the first time they've been to the United States or because it was they were kind of throwing like of- a, a culture? It was like a culture shock, probably culture shock and the language shock that you talked about on a recent podcast it's uh it's just it's hard when when it's not your first language and even for me it's not obviously not the first language but it's like the 1.1 language um i I started learning english when i was when i was seven and um by the time i got back to germany i had an american accent speaking german instead of in the beginning the german accent speaking english (laughs) did uh the people resent you for having an american accent where in Germany? Yeah, or they're like oh, not, that's at cool. yeah, not at that's all. Not at all. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, I wasn't very popular in my in my school in uh, in America. Got a lot of a lot of bullying there. But really, as soon as I yeah, as soon as I got back, um, it was just awesome. That's was, cool. Yeah, I was I was cool because I was I was laid back. I had all these these baggy American clothes, and <laughs> this this American accent. I I didn't even realize I had the American accent. Friends told me like a year or two later. Like really, really, I did. No, I, I never noticed. I've always wondered what an American accent sounds like. You know, it's like what do we sound like? Because obviously, when you hear like a, a UK British person talk, like it's very distinct. Or like someone from Canada, the way they pronounce some vowels, it's very distinct. And then like, is an American accent just like a bland like version of English, where people like it's just like really slow and really bland? Like I've always wondered what it it really sounds like to someone that's not from the states. I think it's hard to explain to someone who's not really a mother tongue speaker. Um, I, I don't have the words to, to explain it actually. It's kind of, I mean, obviously in America, it's a huge country and you have a lot of dialects in, in, in the accent. So um, I can tell if someone from, if, if someone's from New York or from Texas um, pretty easily, and I can sometimes imitate it. Not really well though. Um, in Germany, which is a way smaller country, it's, it's, it's the size of Texas. Um, which is a big state, but still in comparison, in yeah. comparison, it's small. Uh, we have, we have so many dialects. I mean, obviously you go to Bavaria, it's completely different, but even if I were to, um, head to like a small village, kind of like an hour from here, nothing in specific, but, but just any one, um, there might be older people who have never left that place in their life, um, that I will not understand. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and in America it's, it's much easier. Now, when I fly to the West Coast, people often think he sounds American, but not quite like me. So he's probably from the East Coast. And when I fly <laughs> to the East Coast, they think I'm from the West Coast. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah I'm from the South, I, so I don't have necessarily a Southern twang that a lot of the Southerners do. Every once in a while, it'll come out. But it, <laughs> I'm like from the North part of the South. So I'm from North Carolina. So some people don't consider okay. it really like true South, and but it is. It's, yeah. it's pretty much true South, especially when you get into... The, the rural areas, but I don't have necessarily a, a deep Southern accent. At least I don't think so. Maybe you listening, you're like, wow, man, you sound like you're a country, like 
country doofus or something like that. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I could not I could not place you in the United States. That's hilarious. I guess that's a good thing. I'm, I like the mysterious, <laughs> you know. I was going to ask you, I was going to be like, where do you think I'm from? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. In that's Germany, funny. we have what's called the Hochdeutsch. It's the high German, which is like the the completely uh, clean German, um, un, uninfluenced by any any dialect. Um, I, I wouldn't say that you have that for an American English, but e- even American English is already... It's it's American as opposed to British, and even there's there is no one English because it's it's such a universal language on yeah, the planet. That's crazy, it really is, and like it, it can be complete. You can go, I can go over to to Australia and hear someone talk, be like, "What did you just say?" Like we speak the same language, but I did not understand a single word you just said. <laughs> that, that's funny. That's kind of like like uh, like with me, something in places in Germany. Yeah, it's just weird. It's funny how you can, that's just, it's wild. But anyways, all right, let's get back on track. You are going to Phoenix now. You are doing your training. This is the the first time in a while that you've flown a, a motorized airplane, right? Any airplane, yeah. for that matter. Uh, any airplane. And um, I, I got back into it really, really quickly. Um, the, the training is tough. They always have you on edge and, and you're you're always really, really close to being overwhelmed, but never you never cross that line. Um, it's 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 fair. Um, at at no point was it ever unfair. Um, but you you couldn't you couldn't take breaks. There were no breaks. Uh, you were working Monday to Friday. You had your weekend off, and of course there was parties on weekends. And and you would you would go out. Uh, you would drive to Flagstaff or to to do a national park uh, just to kind of kind of relax and unwind. But but when you were on the job, you were on the job, and there was no there was no time to to really relax. How long were you in the United States for? It was a total of six months. Okay. Uh, they had, they had changed it. Um, they changed it a while before I got there. It used to be eight months um, when they would have cadets start on Piper Archers and and quickly progress to a Beach Bonanza and hold on to your hats. They actually got rid. <laughs> they got rid of the archers and they would have these young adults who had never flown a plane in their life start their flight training on a beach bonanza. I mean, I'm kind of jealous. I'm not gonna lie, but if you don't know anything else, if you don't know anything different, that's still, that's like their baseline for speed though. So it's like, is it really, you know, it's like, that's just what they think is the slowest airplane is. Yeah. And it, and it just goes, it goes with, with, uh, with the whole training philosophy, the, uh, the always, always kind of almost overwhelmed, but not yeah. quite. Absolutely. I mean, I've never flown a Bonanza before. I'm jealous of you guys. That's that's fun. It's an amazing. It's <laughs> yeah. an amazing airplane. I mean, Absolutely. you have you have first time first time student pilots fly this this high performance com- complex airplane, uh, retractable gear, the, the variable pitch prop, and it's just amazing. When you were when you were over there training, did you get were you training via FAA standards and then convert it back to IKO, or was it or European EASA? I guess I should say, or were you training for EASA? It was European standards. Um, back then, it was was actually German standards. Um, it wasn't wasn't Europeanized yet. You would you would have a. It was completely internal flight training. You would have internal check rides done by the airline's own people, and only to the end, uh, you would have your basically your commercial check ride, where an examiner would fly in from Germany and fly with you to take your check ride. Would you guys do those in German or would it be in English? I can't remember. <laughs> well, just because English is obviously like the the language for for aviation, and it's just interesting to see how you guys would do that. I would imagine English, if I had to guess. 
I think when obviously when we talked to the examiner, we would do that in in German. Um, theoretical questions were answered in German. Um, radio communications, obviously in English. And I think that the rest the rest of our procedures are are also pretty English. One of the, the funny things about about the way we learn to fly is uh, they had us fly the plane from the beginning as if it were an airliner. It's a single pilot airplane, but they would have us fly it pretending we were flying a two pilot plane. So you you would sit in the in the left hand seat. You would be uh, kind of schizophrenic, pilot flying and pilot monitoring in one. So you would accelerate down the runway. I don't think we had a V1 because <laughs> that would have been going too far. But you would you would say rotate. You would pull back on the yoke. You have the ground receding below you. You have to keep your hands on the yoke. You say gear up. Then you respond. Still hand on the yoke. Gear up. Then move your hand to the gear handle and move it up. Okay. So you were doing the challenge and response in one person, um, which was weird from the beginning, but you just learned both sides, um, which is what they wanted you to, to do. What was the hardest part of the training for you when you, were, when you came over to the States? I had flown VFR already, so I knew that. Um, that was pretty, well, I couldn't say easy. It was, it was, it was, that wasn't too hard for me. I had trouble when I started flying IFR when we went under the hood. I did start to get some some trouble when we started flying IFR and went under the hood, um, and I think the main reason was actually because I'm 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 a big goon of a guy. I'm six six tall, and even the Bonanza, being a big plane, um, was kind of still not uh, that tall. <laughs> still not still yeah. not big enough. For it wasn't me. made for a six foot six guy. It wasn't, and yeah. and when we started flying under the hood, I kept getting sick, and it didn't get any better, and I had no idea what what the problem was. Um, until I realized that I wasn't, I, I wasn't holding my head straight oh. in, in VFR flying. It, it was no problem at all. Cause my, my eyes, my, my vision would correct for the, for the, for the head, which was kind of tilted at like a five degree angle. Um, but the cockpit was just too low that with the padding of the David Clark, um, headset, I would hit the ceiling and I would have to tilt my head slightly. So we got rid of the padding in the headset. I could hold my head up straight. And I didn't get sick anymore. That's so funny. Glad you figured that out. That'd be bad. It's oh, like, why, is, yeah. why do you keep getting sick, man? <laughs> that was weird. That's funny. So the hardest part for you was IFR and mainly just battling, getting sick and getting over that. It wasn't necessarily the actual instrument flying itself. No, no, not at all. No, we had amazing instructors and, and uh, we had a little bit of ground school there too. So we, we got a little bit of the IFR uh, theory there, um, more of it when we got back to, uh, to Germany half a year later. But the IFR flying was, was real, real fun. I, had never, I hadn't imagined it before. Um, I thought I would hate it because I love looking outside. I'm a very visual, visual person like you. I need to see something. I need to touch it. Um, and to this day, when I fly the airliner... I just enjoy looking out. That was one of the first things I did when I was on on the 320 was um approaching Frankfurt my my home base. I would look outside and I would I would try to identify uh the places that I knew down below. And in the beginning I could see Frankfurt due to its its skyline. Um but but then you would you would start to see the highways, the autobahn 
And uh, you would know, okay, that's the 66, which goes westbound. And so, okay, oh, that's the shopping center down there. Um, and then fr- from from one waypoint to the to the next, I would I would connect the dots, and and now I can be half an hour away from Frankfurt. I I can already see all the all the small towns and, and recognize everything. It's fun when so, it all comes together like that. Oh, it's amazing! It's amazing, and it's it's it back to my childhood when I was when I was interested in astronomy. One of the things that actually um, also came together in that way was when I first realized. Um, how the moon phases work, like why the moon is sometimes a small crescent, sometimes you see it in the evening, sometimes you see it in the morning. Um, and that's what actually gave me as a little kid, I think I was eight or nine, um, a lot of, of that spatial thinking that you need in your, in your head uh, to become a pilot, for example. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah, I never really thought, I wasn't very much like astrology or astronomy based. <laughs> I took a couple of astronomy classes when I was in college, like maybe I'll be an astronomer. And then I was like, what's next? And he goes, oh, it's all math from here. And I was like, nope, I'm good. Catch you later. I like stars. <laughs> I don't want to know why they do what they do or how they do what they do. I just like looking at stars. <laughs> oh, oh, same here. Yeah. I, I enjoy the beauty. I enjoy the beauty. But I, it's just anything that kind of gets you to think about a three-dimensional uh, world or universe that 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 kind of that helps you uh, to understand the world uh, in the way that a pilot needs because it's it's six degrees of freedom. There's um, there's up, down, left, right. Well, more front than back, um, but then you have you have rotation around three axes and and being able to to connect all of that and to have it work in your head uh, that helps a lot. So I th- I think that that also helped a lot with the IFR flying. Um, that, that even, even today, uh, where everything is, is fully automatic, um, that I can still see in my head how that, that holding pattern entry works and why we're flying it this way or, or another. Yeah. It's important to have that kind of spatial awareness, right? So like you, you almost like have not, not a, not an out of body experience, but you almost like remove yourself, like look from above and you can kind of figure out why you're doing this. Like you're listening to radio calls and putting together where other airplanes are and just kind of understanding the whole, the whole reason for what you're doing and seeing it happen in your head definitely makes it, makes it a lot easier. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you were, so you came over to the States, you didn't have your private pilot license, right? No, no, okay. I did not. I had, I had 30 hours. Um, I hadn't even soloed because I was just too young back then. What so did I went, you, what did you come, what did you leave the States with? Did you leave with private instrument and commercial? We had a commercial check ride. We didn't get any of the others. We didn't get that. Um, there, there were no, there were no valid check rides for anything you would get a certificate for. Um, it was it was all just company internal. The last thing was was the official German check ride for the for the commercial. So I had nothing from the United States. I opted because I wanted to to stay a week longer and use all of the experience, all the hours, all of, all the stuff I had done in the last six months uh, to do a quick conversion to a Cessna, and then just get my get my private. So now I still have that private. Um, and all I would need is a BFR. Nice. So you still, you have an FAA private pilot license. Then. Exactly. All right, cool. Exactly. Yeah. That, that was going to be my important. question. I was going to yeah. say, can you fly like a small plane? Like, can you just go to an airport and fly a small plane or cause your rating, is it only a commercial like rating for Germany? Um, I could, but, but in Germany it works this way. You have, um, you have a private, a commercial or an ATPL. 
Um, and in that license, you would have the different ratings. You would have like a type rating for the A320, um, or you would have a class rating for for single-engine piston land. So an airline pilot flying a Boeing 757 in Germany can't automatically just go to any small airport and fly, fly a small plane. Even, even if he got like a checkout on that plane, he would need that, that, um, that class rating in his license, which a lot, a lot of people confuse that. Um, they say, well, um, well, are, can, are you still a private pilot? So no, I will never be a private pilot as long as I have an, an ATP. Um, but the ATP can include class ratings or, or type ratings for any plane that I want. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Which is, I think it's, it's why people like John, isn't it, isn't it similar in the United States? It is, is that similar. like John, John Travolta can, as a private pilot, fly a jet airliner. Uh, he can be type rated in it. And there's different, I don't know. I'm not a CFI. So I kind of like blocked most of that stuff out, but yeah, he can, um, there's, he would need to have a type rating for that. And I'm guessing he could do that under his private pilot, but he would have limitations on what he could do with that. So exactly. like commercialized, he so he couldn't use it obviously for any commercial business. He probably, I think he has his, com- I would want to say he has his commercial rating. I don't know for sure, but I don't know. I don't even know if he still flies. Yeah. That'd be good. Get him on the podcast and ask him, right? <laughs> oh, 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 Terry yeah. Hertz, John Travolta. Going I know, right? Going get Tom, might as well get Tom Cruise too, to help promote <laughs> Top Gun. Um, but yeah, so in the States, it's, I have, if I have a private pilot license, if I have single engine, kind of a single engine private pilot, I can fly any single engine and I'm, I'm legal to do it. It doesn't mean I'm smart to do it because obviously there's a big difference between a 172 and like something that's a little bit faster and quicker because they're different, different systems, different, just different handling characteristics and doesn't make it smart, but you can still go fly that by the law because you have your private pilot license on a single engine airplane. But does does the FAA or is it is it the uh, the place you rent it from that will make you do a uh, the place you rent like it from introductory. per insurance will want you to have a checkout before you can be insured to go fly that airplane? Okay, yeah. Well, it's it's pretty much the same here. Yeah. Then. Everything is run by insurance, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, they want to they want to make sure they check all the boxes off. All right, let's. Uh, I want to talk about the transition from the states to going back to your country, going back to Germany. What was yeah. it? What was next? So you do all your, you get your. Essentially, you have your commercial rating, and then you come back to Germany. What was next in your in your path? So when we got back, it was one more uh, semester of ground school at the at the flight school. Uh, we would learn all the advanced IFR and and airliner system knowledge um, before we went to the German equivalent of the FAA, they would have um, your, your, you would take your theoretical ATP test. Um, and then you would have what's called a frozen ATPL. It's basically a commercial license with all of the theory for the, for the airline transport done, but you would need to gather the hours. And after that, it's just, it's just, bureaucratic you just have to apply for the license and they would send it to you because you'd already taken the test um you just have to send them your logbook to show them you have the hours yeah and after when that was done uh we started to do about after that was done we went on to uh, twin engine training we had a piper cheyenne they switched that around a couple of years back. Um, now they're flying Citations. I don't know which one, but uh, the Cheyenne was definitely one of the most awesome planes I've I've ever got to fly. Um, 
I don't think there's that many of them flying around anymore. It's just, um, uh, it's a, it's a very complex plane or it was for me at that <laughs> point in time. Um, every new plane seems to be a very complex plane, doesn't it? Like, it's just like, you think you can never figure it out or you never be able to find anything better or cooler. And then you just keep getting yeah. better and better and better. I mean, we had, we had a partial glass cockpit, but there was still a lot and a lot of steam gauges going on over there. And they were, they were small and there were many of them. And the, the procedures were again, like flying an airliner, uh, with your CFI on the, on the right seat. And it was, it was tough. Uh, but again, it was fair at, at all times. And once that was done, after a couple of weeks, uh, you would have another check ride, and then you were ready to go directly to that uh, airline. Did everyone move on to the airline? We did. Okay. Uh, we, we lost one guy very early on, um, which was, I think it was a problem between him and the instructor, which was it took everyone too long to realize that. And then he was already gone due to a relatively strict failure policy. Uh, but from, from what I heard, he got his training um, at a private flight school. He paid for it directly. And then he started flying a 737 for Gene airlines in, in uh, Europe. And as far as I know, he's actually back in, back in Germany or back in, in central Europe again. So he, he found his way and he became an excellent pilot despite uh, what, what the instructor thought back then. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely impossible. Sometimes you just don't mix well with an instructor. So you need to do your due diligence, get another one and figure out your best learn, how you learn and who can teach you the best. Yeah. Yeah. What was it going? So now you're with the airline. It had to feel good that you knew that you, you had a job going to that airline in your training, right? Definitely. It was, it was absolutely, it was absolutely amazing. You didn't have to think about that at all. You, you just knew you performed as well as you could. You, you pass all the tests and, and you were guaranteed the job at that airline. So, and, and it's, it's, it's pure luxury. I mean, this is people listening to this in other parts of the world will think, whoa, this is just, this is my dream. Because when we were done with our, our flight school, um, the airline came and said, okay, now here we're offering you jobs. And the airline has a short and medium range fleet. They have a long range fleet. So we would start out as first officers on the short range, short and medium range fleet. And at that time, they had three different airplanes flying that. They had a Boeing 737, the Airbus 320, and the A300-600. And you could apply for any of those. So you have these young people we had all gone to university, so we were maybe 23, 24. Uh, but the ones that did only the, the pilot training course, they were maybe 20, 21, 22. And they, they actually, they were, they were going to get their first jobs as pilots. And they had the choice of 737s, 320s. And they were, they were actually bickering about who would get what. And I want to fly the 737 because it's just cooler. Uh, so I said, no, I want to fly the 320 because it's got a, it's got a table where I can put my lunch on. I, I, I chose the 320 and I got the 320. And I went into my typewriting. It was two to three months of um, a short ground course and then a uh, simulator. And I had my, my check ride in the simulator on December 30th, 2007. And that's, that's, when, I, that's when I officially got my, my contract with the airline uh, as a pilot. How long did you fly the 324? Uh, for 10 years. And that was my own choice because 
The next step after short and medium range is to transition to long range, also as FO again. And again, you can choose. And it's all based on seniority. So I could have flown for two, three, four years and gone to the 330, 340. I could have waited for seven or eight years and flown 747, but I wanted to wait for the A380. And that took uh, 10 years, according to seniority. Yeah. And now everyone's getting rid of them. (laughs) (laughs) I really, I really can't understand it. I mean, I, I realize that. I realize that a four-engine plane is kind of outdated and that, that everyone's flying twins. And um, despite all the ETOPS uh, difficulties, it's, it's, still, it's still more efficient and, and, and saves fuel. But it's kind of like, like transitioning to electric cars. I mean, producing a car um, causes so much more emissions and, and uses so much more resources uh, than you can ever save by just driving an old car which might emit more carbon or 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 use more more fuel um but just driving that old car until it's dead and and, and no longer no longer viable how much longer do you think you have in the 380 do they have they have like a retirement plan or are they going to keep them for the foreseeable future they they have a plan but several other fleets have been uh reduced and 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 finally uh gotten rid of at at the airline and it's it's never been it's never been the date that that was originally published <laughs> Same. That's how all companies are. It's like, yeah, we're going to get rid of them in five years. 20 years later, uh, I think we're going to keep them for another five years. <laughs> yeah. If they can make a company money and they can serve a purpose, there's no reason to get rid of them. They will absolutely keep them. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that. That. No, let's let's not talk about, about hearsay. <laughs> <laughs> smart man, smart let's, man. Let's just let's scratch that. Scratch what, uh, what's been your favorite part about transitioning from short haul to long haul flying? People always told me that long haul is like going on vacation. And that's absolutely true. It's not so much about the flying, which is for that reason, I'm glad that I flew the the 320 for 10 years because flying wise, it's awesome. We had one of the most amazing networks that any airline has with the 320. You could be away from home from one day to five days. You could fly 20 minute flights from Frankfurt to Nuremberg. You could fly five hours to, um, to Tel Aviv or, or to, uh, to wherever your heart desired, essentially, right? Yeah. To, to a lot of far, far away places. Yeah. So you could, you could fly, you could fly the really short legs, you could fly the long legs and you had a lot of say, um, in, in what you got. You, the bidding system was pretty good and you got a lot of choice. And now I have two or three rotations a month. Um, I don't get a landing on each one because most of our flights are enlarged. So we're three pilots for for two sectors. So it's not about flying the plane that much anymore. It's about going to San Francisco, getting a rental car and driving up to Muir Woods. It's about flying back to my home in New York and spending 24 hours there. Uh, What's your typical layover? How long do you normally have before you go out on another flight? Depends on the distance and the time zones crossed. It's um, 24 or 48 hours. Okay. When you go on a long flight like that, what's the actual recovery process like? So obviously, say for the first time you go to this place, you're like, first time you go to San Francisco, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to go explore. I have 24 or 48 hours off. When you first went there, did you actually need the full 24 hours to recover? Or was it kind of just like a normal, like, all right, 10 hours, I'm good, and I'm going to go explore? It's kind of a mixture. I don't, I don't take the time completely and right away. I split it up over over the time. That's one of the hardest things about flying long range is that you have you usually have multiples of twenty four hours um, or twenty six and fifty maybe because um, the plane comes in, 
then they have a two-hour turnaround, and then the crew from the previous day or from two days ago will take that plane back home. So the hardest thing is in 24 hours transitioning from being awake for a whole day and then being awake 24 hours later for a whole night. So normally, normally in 24 hours, I mean, you've, you've worked the entire day, you would get to your hotel, maybe eat something, drink something, go sleep. That's maybe eight hours. Then you get up and then you do something for 10 hours and then it's time to go. <laughs> it's pickup time. And that obviously doesn't work. So, so either you kind of extend the, the first day, like when I fly to the West Coast, um, it, it still feels like, like America's my, my home time zone. So when I fly to New York, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm not going to bed at 3 a.m. Now I'm going to bed at 10 p.m. like normal people. Uh, when I fly to the West Coast, um, it's, it's even, it's even more pronounced that I will, will arrive there depending on the flight. Sometimes it's, it's in the, it's in the afternoon. Sometimes it's the evening. Uh, but I'll stay awake until, until 10 PM, which in Germany is 7 AM. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go do something. I'll take the colleagues and, and head down to a bar, get a burger, all that cool stuff that you can do in America and, uh, and then go to sleep. And the amazing thing is that I can actually sleep until the next morning at seven. So I, I sleep from, from 10 PM to 7 AM. Um, other people have, have the problem that they will wake up nonetheless at 2 AM and then they can't sleep anymore. Um, for me, if I do, I have this thing, I just say, okay, I can sleep. I just turn around and I, I keep sleeping. Um, so, so that's pretty cool. And then if it's, if it's a 24 hour stop, then I would have, of course, have the problem that I'm, that I'm, that I'm in the local time zone and then I would have the night flight. So in this case, it's actually cool to get up a little earlier to not give yourself that full sleep so that you can sleep in the afternoon before your pickup. That's, that's the one way of going at it. Do you get tired of going to any of the same places? Cause obviously when you're flying long haul, it's, you're going to go to the same what like six or eight airports over and over and over again. Are you tired of it or do you still enjoy it? I do get tired of it, uh, depending highly on the place that I go. I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of flying to Asia. Um, in parts because the the second half of the flight is is really challenging with with ATC, uh, you're flying over over India and and uh, especially like uh, Myanmar, um, really really spotty ATC down there. I wouldn't call it dangerous, but um, you really have to pay attention, um, say things ten times and twenty times until until people understand you, uh, and it, it's not it's not just it's not just a language barrier. And then it's also that that I'm just not really interested in those places. Like um, I, we fly to Shanghai. I think next summer we're supposed to go uh, fly to Shanghai from from Frankfurt and from Munich, which we both do uh, on on the A380. Um, also from from the Frankfurt base, they send us down to Munich, and then then we uh, fly fly to Shanghai. And that's just not a place that interests me. And other people love it, and, and it's great for them. Um, so. Having been to Shanghai once, I would I don't need to go a single time more. But I can I could fly to San Francisco two times a month. I actually flew to Los Angeles um, four times in one month uh, last year. Nice, it's a good place to go. Yeah. Oh, I love I love LA, and and we're often we're often kind of on the outskirts of the cities, which is cool in in the big American cities because you have uh, you can get a rental car and you can head out into nature, which is what I, what I prefer to do. Los Angeles, uh, we had a really, really great downtown hotel. We, we were staying at the Intercontinental, which is just a beautiful, beautiful hotel. 
and in in LA, there's there's no reason for me to to get a rental car and head out because there's so much food and drink and stuff to do in downtown. I I loved it, and that's why I went there there four times in one month, and I could still do it. Do you think you want to be long haul forever? Do you think once you've kind of tasted the long haul life, you can't really see yourself going back to short haul, or do you want to go back and maybe captain a a three twenty and fly around Europe? Uh, to be honest, I already know now that I don't want to be long range pilot for much longer. I, I do have to because the the next step becoming captain on the short haul, which in my case would be the A320, like you said, um, that's that's far away. Um, like even even now, when I started flying, they were at about eight to twelve years FO time before you got to be captain on the short range, and now we're at eighteen plus. Wow! I think I'll be yeah, I'll be looking. I'll, I'll probably be looking more like uh, more at twenty. Dang, that's a long time to sit FO, and that's probably a that pretty a big pay pay difference too, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's like, come on, guys, you, you should you should retire earlier. How's that? How's that retirement looking? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, we had a whole wave of people um, who extended past uh, the age of sixty to sixty five because um, it used to be that our, that our scope clause limited uh, the age for for pilots at my airline to sixty, but. I think the the IASA law was, or European law was 65. Um, and then I think some people uh, went into litigation because it was a, they said they said they were being discriminated. And to be honest, I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome to be a pilot, but it's also pretty awesome to, to not have to fly when you're 60. So you obviously, judging by your Instagram, I'm sure obviously you have a, a good amount of following. There is this the side of you that still wants to to go and be an astronaut. How is this like a realistic goal? Is this something that is almost impossible? Like I have no idea how to become an astronaut and it just seems like it'd be almost impossible. But like, what's, what, what's your status with that? Well, we, we talked about it a little earlier and um, for a long while, I thought it was pretty unrealistic and life, life plays in funny ways sometimes. And, and it's um, a couple of years back, I realized that, that it's not that unrealistic and that I'd actually chosen a path in my life that that placed me in a pretty pretty good spot to actually become an astronaut, uh, which is for the one part going to university and 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 doing something with engineering, aviation, air and space, um, and the other part obviously is is be, being an airline pilot, um, especially at a at a big at a good airline uh, flying this 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 massive airplane. So to become an astronaut. The only thing you do is apply. You would go to NASA. I would go to ESA, the, the European uh, Space Agency. And they, they have requirements. And as long as you fulfill those requirements, you get into the first round of, of applications. So for, for ESA, NASA has more frequent calls for astronauts. ESA last time was, I think, 11 or 12 years ago. They screened a whole class of astronauts who now have almost all been to space, some even more than once. And we're kind of getting to the point where they need some new younger astronauts. Some new so blood. I'm kind of, new blood, young <laughs> yeah. blood. I'm expecting that anytime. So maybe this year, maybe next year, it, it's got to come at, at one point in time because they, they need new astronauts. And there's um, space is booming um, in the United States. You've got SpaceX, you've got Boeing working on the Starliner. You have uh, you have all these projects and, and we want to go to the moon again. We want to put the first woman on the moon. We want to go to Mars. And Europe is going to be a part of that because the European Space Agency, with with over twenty member states, uh, is huge. It's a huge organization, 
Um, and we have, we have a lot of intelligent people who are just waiting to become astronauts. And, and the application is, is pretty simple. I mean, 10 years ago, it was, um, you had to be above and below a certain height. So that's probably what's going to cause me the most trouble. Uh, you need a degree, I think, in a, in a scientific field. Um, but engineering is, is closest, close enough to science. Uh, so let's say, let's say in STEM. A degree in STEM, you uh, pilot experience is is welcome. Um, apart from that, I think you need a class one medical, All right. which I already have. Yeah. Look at you. So that 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 will keep some people from from applying out of fun because they say, well, to get a class one medical, I have to go to a to an AME, and it's going to cost me a couple of hundred euros dollars. Um, I'm not going to do that because I don't think I'm going to do it anywhere. I, I don't really want to do it, but. Um, I definitely want to do it. I would, I would get that that um, examination even if I didn't have the the medical certificate yet. And then you apply, and then it's it's uh, basically like the like the assessment centers I talked about for my airline job, just a little more difficult. There's more of them. Um, there's more rounds. They 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 do a lot more and more fitness tests as well. Uh, but it's it's similar, and it's I, I I sometimes I call it pilot plus. Like just pilot plus. I like that. It's like, sounds like something Apple would come up with a oh, pilot plus max. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or pilot max. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a very similar job. I mean, you have, you have more responsibilities. You have to do all the, all the science aspects. Uh, you, you, you're, you're responsible for, for science experiments on the space station, um, on the moon, on Mars in the future. So they need people who have experience working scientifically. That's why they want you to have a degree. I'm not sure if my degree will be enough for what they want. I mean, there's, there's, there's going to be super qualified people applying. So there will be a lot, of, um, a lot of people who might be better than me in a certain field. But again, like, like um, back when I wanted to become a pilot, that's okay because – Maybe I'm better in something else. And, and again, the space agencies are looking for the people that are the, the best for the job. If they don't choose me, I'll probably be a lot more disappointed than back when I did, if, if I hadn't got the pilot's job. Um, but still, uh, life, life has a weird way of giving you the things you want in the end. Um, you do have to work for them, of course. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting, on my, sitting on my butt here. Um, I'm actually learning Russian which is, it's going better on some days and, and worse on others, but um, I'm using Duolingo to, to learn, uh, which is a great, great language app just to, um, for, for any pilot who flies outside of his own uh, language circle of influence, because uh, it, it helps you quickly uh, get that, that first knowledge and, and kind of understand another language. Um, and the same for Russian. I can I can read simple texts in Russian after about a year of working with this app on and off. And that that's just just training by myself, just uh, reminding myself each and every day to just take 15 minutes. And and the app actually tells you um, you can learn a language with 15 minutes a day. What can social media do? <laughs> and and I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree because a lot of people don't use social media for, for a lot of good. Um, but social media can do a lot of good. And, and you talk about that a lot in your podcast, too. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is the reason that you want to go in space? Is it the exploration type of it? Like you want to be like a pioneer? You want to go like see the new frontier, like keep pushing 
kind of humanity and see where we can go? Or is it just like you want to be like, you want to be like the best? Like, if you think about it, like pilots are good. And then like you would think about astronauts as being the best of the best, you know, like it's just, is it kind of that kind of thing or what's the reason behind <laughs> the it? Men in black, huh? the, yeah. the best of the best of the best. That's definitely <laughs> not it. Yeah. I, despite my, my rather large following on social media, uh, which, which is great. Uh, it's, it's great feedback in a world where you don't get a lot of feedback, a lot of positive feedback. Um, but that's not what it's about. It's not about me. I mean, uh, recently I've posted one or two selfies or, or self portraits, but it's not supposed to be about me. I don't care about being the best. Uh, the exploration aspect is definitely one of them. Um, I was at an ESA event where they showed an image film about the European Space Agency and, um, the whole film was pretty emotional, but at the end, they had this, this, this slogan. They said, um, Europe, once explorers, always explorers. Like we were the ones that found the new continent and whatever. And, and, and that, that really, that really hit home. And, and I had kind of tears in my eyes and, um, I do get emotional over stuff like that. Cause, cause I felt, I felt like, yeah, that's the reason. That's one of the reasons. Um, because I love seeing new stuff. Um, I go caving, cave exploring, um, a little bit also in preparation for this, for the astronaut, uh, assessment, because the astronauts actually do cave exploring to train. That's oh, wow. their way of, of learning to, to explore new worlds, different worlds, um, because you're in darkness all the time. So it's, it's a different environment that you have to, that you have to adapt to, that you have to take yeah. um, equipment to survive in. Uh, you definitely need different clothing. You need, um, sleeping bags and tents to, to sleep under the <laughs> and ground. You're in very you close proximity like, too, right? Like oh, it's like small oh, yeah. quarters and very small quarters, a small group that you have to, to rely on and trust to, to 100%. Uh, so that, that exploration aspect is definitely one of them. I've, I've been in, in caves in places where I know that no human being has ever been before, before we got there. And that's just incredible. That's, that's an amazing feeling. And I know other people would freak out over, over going to a cave, but I think one, one of the things that that's, that's kind of accompanied me throughout my life is that, um, just standing on the surface of the earth is kind of boring. I like flying. I like skydiving. I like diving. I like cave spelunking. And, uh, so exploration is, is one aspect. And the other is actually that I adore the, the extreme amount of different things that an astronaut gets to learn and do. That's one of the things that, that as a pilot, I kind of don't like that much. And, and the one thing that I tell young people that ask me, um, what's, what's bad about becoming a pilot or, or what would you say? What would you tell me to be aware of is, is actually the level of boredom that you can have on a long range flight or even, even on some, um, on some short range days. Yeah, and I agree. You, you were talking about your job. That's that, that's kind of chaotic. You don't know where you're going to end up at the end of the day. That's pretty cool, but not all pilot jobs will have that. And a lot of them are very, very repetitive. Uh, we have low cost airlines in Germany that fly five days on four days off, uh, for the rest of their lives. And they only fly uh, single day rotations. So they would be back at home every single night. It's not something for a person who wants to see the world, but it's great for people who want to be at home. Um, but, but again, it's the same thing over and over and they will be flying on one day down to Portugal and back the next day, Portugal and back the next day, 
Brieston back. And it, it, it does get boring. And if you're the kind of person that, that wants to see something new all the time and, and gather a lot of experience, it might not be the right thing unless you're, unless you're willing to, to skip around a lot. I mean, the airline business is based a lot on seniority. So it's typically one where you would try to go for that one airline that you want to stay at the rest of your life. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, same way here. So an astronaut, on the other hand, they learn medical skills because up on the ISS or, or on the moon, there are no doctors. So the astronauts are the doctors. They learn, well, they even learn like basic plumbing because they have to repair the toilet on the ISS. There's no plumber you can call, but they, they learn how to, how, to, um, how to take care of all those science experiments up there. At, at any time, there's like two, 300 experiments running on the ISS, and it's the astronaut's job to take care of those of those experiments, but also to take care of the station itself, of the life support system that's enabling them to take care of those experiments. Um, the astronauts go go cave exploring to to learn how to explore new worlds and and build as a team. They learn survival skills. They learn uh, they learn they learn to dive. They learn all these cool things, and they have to use them later on. So that that's one of the things I love most about about going to space. That's cool. And yeah, I mean, I wish you the best of luck because I don't have those same aspirations. I kind of like being on Earth. I'm not really trying to go to Mars or anything, but I'm glad you want to do it. And I think it's <laughs> something that's good for humanity and good for just exploration and furthering science, technology, and just us as a race. You know, I think it's exciting and I think it's fun. And I hope in like 10 years, we're reading about how you're the first person to walk on Mars. You know, that'd be pretty cool. I'll send you a postcard. Yeah, please do. Yeah, <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Thank I'll you. be rooting for me down here. But uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We've been talking for about an hour and a half now. I kind of want to get into a quick little rapid fire section, if you're all right with that, yeah, and then sure. we can kind of close it up. All right, so rapid sure. fire. It's just going to be quick aviation questions. You just answer them as fast and as quick as possible. Oh, these are hard. Yeah, man. You're going to be, it's going to be tough. No, it won't be bad. You'll be good. All right. Here's the first one. What is your favorite general aviation airplane? So like small airplane. That's why I said it's tough because I don't have any of those. I would I would probably go go to the gliders. And, and one of the ones I had most fun in was the ASK-23. Uh, it's, it's a rather old, um, one of the first, I think it's one of the first um, plastic planes. Uh, and uh, it, it was, I just had a great time in flying that. What about your first, what about a corporate jet? Do you have a favorite corporate jet? Can I say laddie? You can, of course, you can. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think I think that the the G six hundred fifty that that Terry did that round the world yeah, thing is cool pretty awesome. Too. Yeah, that's a pretty cool plan. I'll give him that one. What about airliner? What's your favorite airliner? Is it the three eighty? Well, you know, it's always the plane you fly yourself. So the the three eighty is just just a fantastic plane. Um, the Concorde is actually one that that's hard to argue against. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? You know, I know you were going to ask this, and, and there's no real answer. And I, I actually Googled for ugly airplanes, um, <laughs> That's expecting hilarious. this question of yours. And, and I found one that, that, um, that is just the weirdest looking plane I've ever seen, the McDonnell XF-85 Goblin. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, it's an experimental plane that was built um, for the defense of the B-36 bomber okay. from a hostile interceptor aircraft. It... it it's almost cute, but not really. <laughs> All right, I'm it, looking it, it doesn't right look now. like it could fly. Oh my gosh, yeah. That is a interesting looking airplane. Yeah. 
All right. It's like really small and fat. It looks like a bomb almost. <laughs> a bomb with wings. Yeah. It, I think it was supposed to fit into the, the bomb compartment of the B-36. That's hilarious. That's like a Star Wars thing. Like the, the little jets come out of like the Death Star. That's what it looks yeah, like. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. All right. Uh, who in the industry is someone that you would like to meet most? So like they could be dead or alive, like a Bob Hoover, or maybe there's like a, a German famous aviation person that you'd like to meet that no one else knows about. Is there any one person? Or it could be an astronaut in your case. Richard Branson. There you go. I like it. That'd be a good one to meet. <laughs> yeah, that's who I meant. All right. Uh, what is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? How boring long-range flights can be. <laughs> Very true. What's your favorite thing about aviation? I think the, the favorite part is how it keeps your horizon extremely wide. You, on the one hand, physically, you visit all these places and, and uh, get to meet all these people. But then also on the inside, culturally, it's, it's just amazing. Um, meeting people and, and learning to understand them, learning their languages and their customs. Least favorite airport you've ever landed at? Don't have one. What's your favorite airport you ever get to land, you get to land at? Naples, Italy. Okay, that's they a have, good one. Yeah, usually you fly a, a pretty steep approach from the northeast, um, and rarely a uh, an offset approach from the southwest. It's a very short runway. Usually we'd fly in with the A321, um, so you really have to to hit the touchdown zone early. Um, plus, when you're coming in from the northeast, the usual direction it's got I think one percent upslope, so you're coming in a like four degree glide path, and then you've got the runway going up. So you really have to pull hard. And it's still, it's still going to be hard landing anyway. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or city? Mountains. Uh, well, you say you have a connecting flight. You need to grab some food real quick. Or you have a quick little layover and you got like 45 minutes at airport to get food. What kind of food are you getting? <laughs> you know those fresh squeezed juices? Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. of those. I like that. That's good. Uh, this has been an easy one. I think I know the answer. Airbus or Boeing? Airbus. Favorite the only airline? One, oh, there, there is one Boeing though. What? The CST-100 Starliner. All right. That's fair enough. That, that, that's, the, that's the spaceship they're building. <laughs> fair enough. What's your favorite airline livery? Uh, the American Airlines with the American flag on the, on the yeah, tail. Yeah, that's a cool one. Long trips yeah. or short trips? Usually short. Worst experience with a captain or FO? Or do you not have one? No, there, there's, there's, been, there's been some... Some weird times, but yeah. um, there's there's actually there's actually one story which which um, I'd love to share because uh, we were talking about how young people, 21, 22 years old, uh, with no previous pre- well, with with I don't know 200 hours um, of, of flight training, go and fly a, a B30, a 737, or a uh, an A320, um, which would would scare people who don't realize how high quality the training is. Um, so. You would sit next to captains with a lot of experience, but it's usually the FOs who are way more skilled in flying the airplane. So you have this this um, juxtaposition of of extreme experience and extreme manual flying skill. Um, of course, the young FOs are um, they don't know everything. Uh, neither do the captains, but the the teamwork is great. And and the one. Most important thing is that a young first officer is always trained to to question and challenge the commander, the captain, if if he doesn't work according to the procedure. Um, you have your callouts, and and if the captain doesn't fly the way um, that it's in the books, you're taught 
from from day one on with almost no experience to challenge that to say hey captain you're doing it in a different way than i'm expecting why and if it's if there's no time to talk about it then you take control of the airplane i mean we have the rule that under a thousand feet um any active crew member calls go around we fly go around no matter there there's no questions asked because we're just too close to the ground uh you can talk about it later um so I had one experience where I actually told the captain to go around and he wanted to start discussing. And I told him, no, nope, go around because we, we were out of limits. It was just a thousand, thousand feet is our approach gate. And I told him, nope, go around. And he flew the go around and he told me afterwards um, that he was totally in that, in that tunnel, you know, uh, that 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 target fixation that he was thinking no 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 it's all okay and i told him well no sometimes you have thunderstorms closing in from all sides and you're in a you're in a bad situation between a rock and a hard place and and the landing is the better better choice uh, even though you're out of limits but those are not your usual out of limit days this was a day when the weather was expected or or obviously getting better the thunderstorm was moving away um, it was clear skies ahead. We just, we just tried to do a short approach and, and we were too fast, too hot, too high. Um, and, uh, and he said, Hey, that, that was good. So that was, it was a weird experience in, in, in the first, um, in the first seconds, but afterwards it was exactly the right choice. Good. I like that. Sometimes you got to step up as a young FO, you know? Oh, you definitely, yeah. that, that's one thing I can, I can, uh, tell anyone just stand your ground. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, those are all the rapid fire questions I have for you. Congratulations. Oh, wow. You have successfully finished the podcast. Uh, Ulrich, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. It was great to talk with you and kind of hear more of your story. And I think some of your followers on Instagram will appreciate it. Uh, anyone that doesn't know who you are, doesn't follow you, go ahead and plug your Instagram and let them know where they can find you and how they can follow your career. Okay. It's just my name, Ulrich Beinert, um, which will probably be in the title of the podcast. So just check that. It's at Ulrich Beinert. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on and spending some time with me today. I know the time difference can be a little difficult, but uh, we finally got it recorded, man. I'm excited to have this come out. I look forward to it. Thank you, Justin. No it went problem. differently than expected, and uh, <laughs> I, I felt I felt very comfortable talking good. to you. Good. I'm glad. I enjoy man. It was a lot of fun on my end, too. But uh, I appreciate you, and uh, have a good day, man. Thank you so much, Justin. And that is a wrap of episode 94 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Aviation Nation, thank you for listening. Like always, please leave us a review. Let us know what you think about the podcast. You can email me at pilotthepilothq at gmo.com. Check out our website, check out our Patreon page. And if you have any recommendations for me, please, like I said before, email me. Aviation Nation, I hope you have a great day. And as always, happy flying.